Let me ask you to turn, if you don't mind, in your copy of God's Word to the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 26. You'll find it on page 20 in the chair Bible in front of you. We come this morning in our study of Genesis, moving from Abraham last week to Isaac last week, and now we get to Isaac. We get to hear one chapter on his life. And before we get there, I suppose occasionally I hear folks telling me that we have one big problem in America today, in the world today, the Western world. We have a problem of a lack of heroes. We have a problem where we don't have heroic actions. We have people who aren't heroes. We have too many villains. We have a world where everybody's gray and nobody's black and white. Nobody's clearly good. Nobody's clearly evil. And so you get all all this literature. I see it out there on raising up boys who are going to be godly heroes, raising up girls who are going to be heroic women, how to do that, and I have sympathy with that. But I think our major problem, and one of the reasons why we don't have heroes today, is that we've actually got a bad view of what heroism is. We have a skewed view of what a real good hero, a virtuous person, is like. So we come this morning to a text that shows us in a weird way What it means to be God's hero, what it means to be really somebody who has a full life, a full life. Let's come to the text now. We come to Genesis 26. We'll read verse 1 all the way through verse 33, not quite the whole of the chapter. Let's remind ourselves this is God's word, not just my word. It is holy. It is inspired. It is authoritative. It is for us. Let's receive it like that. We're told, beginning in verse 1, that now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And if your offspring, all the nations of the earth be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he'd been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, look, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. 
And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, oh, the water's ours. So Isaac called the name of the well Ethek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So Isaac called its name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we hear it and receive it. Father, show us the life you give, the way you provide, and the calling you lay on our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said this morning, this is a text that shows you what it means to be a hero. It's a text that shows us what it means to live the abundant Christian life. I've had a couple of people in my time as a human being, a couple of people come to me and say, John, I can offer you the full life. Do you have the abundant Christian life? I can give it to you. I usually hide my wallet at that point because I know what they're going to say. But what's funny is that Jesus says, I come to give you abundant life. Where is it? Where's the good life? Where's the heroic life? Do you have it right now? I mean, do you think you have it right now? Where's the full life? 
Many dollars have been made tricking people into the abundant life, selling people on the idea of the full life. We come here and we see what it actually is to have an overflowing, an abundant, a full life. We see it with a weird guy. We see it with Isaac. You ever thought about Isaac? I mean, Isaac's kind of the, the middle child. I don't know if some, some of y'all here are middle, middle children. What happens to the middle children? I'm no expert, but I'm told they get overlooked. So it is with Isaac. Isaac gets overlooked. You think of the classic way of talking about these fathers of the faith, Abra, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. How many chapters does Abraham get? A lot. How many chapters we'll see does Jacob get? A lot. How many chapters in Genesis does Isaac get? One, maybe one and a half. Not that much. This is his only moment in the sun. It's a weird one. It's a weird one. What's it about? We see first here, the first 14 verses. If you want to outline, we'll start here. First 14 verses of the text. We see the way God makes a hero in poverty. God makes a hero in poverty. God provides for his hero, if you want, in poverty. Look at verse 1. We see the problem in verse 1, a famine. Now there was a famine in the land. It's hard for me to read that and know what that means. Because I can go home and I can turn on the AC. I can go home and I can turn the, the, the water on. I can get as much water as I want. It's hard for me to read this and understand this because I can go to the store. I can go to Publix or Walmart or Costco. I can get whatever I want within, you know, budgetary limits. The pantry is stocked. And yet, if you've ever been in a situation where you do not know your meal and where it's coming from, if you do not have enough water, you know the problem of famine. And in the Bible particularly, this is all often, not always, often a famine that is a drought. No rain. You think of Ahab, for example, and Jezebel and Elijah in their time. No rain. That's where Isaac is right now. There's a problem. It's like when, when you're in a, an economy, you may know what this feels like a little bit. An economy with rising inflation. An economy with a recession. Gas prices on the increase. There's a famine. There's a famine in the land. And yet there's always one place in the Old Testament where there's almost never a famine. Egypt. They have the Nile River. They have irrigation. They have water that flows and flows and flows. Egypt is always the, the breadbasket, the place where you go when there's no food. They'll have food in Egypt. Think about it. If you knew that in Canada or in Mexico, gas was $2. If you knew that there was no, uh, was it 9.1% inflation, but there was a great economy booming in Mexico or Canada, wouldn't you be tempted to move there? It might be. I guarantee you that when I go into the city, I check the gas prices. I, I, I get my gas from around here because it's cheaper than in Decatur, Midtown, Atlanta. The temptation is be in the good place. Be in the good land. Be in the prosperous land. What's striking here is verse 2. God says to Isaac, do not go to Egypt. Do not go down to the good land. 
Now, it's funny because daddy did it. His father, Abraham, had gone down to Egypt. He had gone down to Egypt. You remember back in verse back in chapter 12, verse 10. I'll just read it. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. No problem. No issue. God did not curse Abram for going down to Egypt. But here, with his son, same issue, different problem, different response. God says, do not go down to Egypt. Live where you are. Live where I tell you to go. Striking here that God will God appears twice in this story to Isaac. He appears twice in the story to Isaac, and he basically gives him the same stuff, the same conversation each time. Twice he appears, twice he gives a promise. Here he gives a command first. Don't go to Egypt. You see what God's doing here? He is commanding Isaac to stay in the bad economy. He is commanding Isaac to stay in the difficult spot. He is telling Isaac, you must be in the famine. If you knew you can get to a better economy, wouldn't you, wouldn't you leave and go there? That's why people immigrate to America, a better life, opportunity. And yet here Isaac is told, stay where it's bad. Isn't this the way you, you live as a Christian sometimes? You feel hemmed in? You feel like your choices have all kind of uh, narrowed down to option A, which is bad, and option B, which is worse. Hard. Challenging. Maybe the jobs you have aren't great jobs, and you've got to choose one. Maybe the relationships you have are not great options, but you get to choose one. God wants you to choose one of these two things, and you have to do it. God says, Isaac, stay in the bad land. And of course, in the Bible, famine is not just a physical issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a sign of spiritual curse, sadness, awfulness. Think about it. Isaac's a foreigner. He's a refugee. They don't like him in this land. That's why the, the command is sojourn in the land. Don't stay there, but sojourn there. You're going to be a foreigner. You won't know the language you won't know the people. When the economy is bad, who do folks tend to blame? The outsiders. The people who aren't like them. They'll put the bullseye on Isaac's back, and yet God says, stay right there. So what's the, what's the way Isaac's going to be able to stay there? How is Isaac going to be able to deliberately follow the hard command? How will you follow the hard commands that God gives to you? It's right here in verse 3. I will be with you. I will bless you. God gives two things. God gives two wonderful, beautiful ways to help Isaac stay in the hardship. He says, first, Emmanuel. He gives the Emmanuel promise. God with us. I will be with you. Isaac can know no matter what country he's in, no matter where he is, the Lord of all creation will be with him. And then, of course, the second promise, the great promise given to Abraham, given to now to his son, I will bless you. Guaranteed, I will bless you. I will give you many kids. Multiply. You'll have as many kids as the stars above. 
and I will bless all the nations of the earth because of Abraham. He says, don't go back to Egypt. Stay in the trial. Stay in the crucible. And as you do so, you will be fruitful. What's incredible here is that Isaac does it. I think a lot of times we have a messed up view of Isaac. We see Isaac as the young boy with Abraham, kind of almost the the object, the, the servant. We see Isaac, the next chapter, as the old guy who gets deceived. He kind of gets the, the mixed back. Not here. What does he do? Verse 6, he does it. Very simply, he settled in Gerar. He did it. He obeys. He remains. He trusts the word of God. And yet, as he trusts the word of God, his tactic looks a lot like Abraham. As he stays in the land, we meet an old buddy, Abimelech. It may be the same guy from chapter 20 and chapter 12. It may be a different guy. It may be a name, a title like president or prime minister. Maybe they had the, they pass it down for the new king. It doesn't matter really. Regardless, he has the same issue. He's in the land with his wife who's attractive. She's good looking. It's Rebecca. And what does he do? He does what his dad did. He says, she's my sister, not my wife. She's my sister. And you recall from chapter 24, there is a family connection here. So he's not entirely deceiving. We're told why he does it. Verse 9. He's asked, why would you do it? He says, I thought I'd die because of her. I mean, you can, you can remember, Isaac's seen his mom. His mom has been captured by this guy, Abimelech, before. Sarah, she was taken by him. She'd be, he'd be scared it would happen again to Rebecca. He hopes to survive, but verse 8 tells us he can't survive very long. Look there. When he'd been there a long time, Abimelech, King of the Philistines looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, some of y'all may be wondering, if you see two people laughing, how does that tell you their husband and wife? I mean, you know, uh, you could laugh and be brother and sister just fine. The answer here is that this is a euphemism the Bible is using to explain marital bliss. Isaac and Rebekah are pursuing one another. They're joyfully pursuing each other with a happy, loving disposition. This tells us, by the way, that in marriage, conjugal bliss should be joyful. The Bible never says that being married is a dull pain. But note here that the Bible is also not explicit as other cultures in their day or our culture is about marital intimacy. Well, the king sees them. He says, why don't you tell me? You're the husband. And he says, I was afraid. Abimelech responds, he says, verse 11, don't touch her. Don't touch him. And what happens? We're told, verse 12, Isaac gets a lot of stuff. He prospers a hundredfold. He sows, he reaps. We're told the Lord blesses him. Uh, Verse 13, literally the Hebrew says, the man became great. He became greater until he became very great. He got great, great, great. He had a lot of stuff here. He's blessed in the middle of famine. He's blessed in the middle of drought. He went through the hard crucible. Even though he made the same error his dad made, God nonetheless kindly gives provision. Second, not just God's provision in poverty, in the hard times, but second, God's provision in persecution. 
verse 15 to verse 22, really. God's provision in persecution. The first problem is a famine. The second problem is water, wells. You see, this is a, this is a text that talks a lot about water wells. Most of us don't dig wells. We don't have this issue. I know a couple of y'all have had wells before. Uh, I think my wife had a well and, and when she grew up sometime. Uh, and you had to get good water from the well. We don't have that problem these days. But they did. In the desert, in the Middle East, you need water. Isaac gets blessed. Isaac gets so blessed that Abimelech says, get out of town. You are too wealthy. You are much mightier than we. So Abimelech, just like Pharaoh will do later in the Exodus, sees the might, the growth of the, of the godly and sends them out. And then what happens? Verse 18, Isaac starts to dig. He digs his daddy's wells. He digs wells. What happens? Abimelech sees him. These evil people see him. They say, oh, water? We need that. We're taking it over. There's a fight. He digs wells. And the people say, oh, those are our wells. He moves from well to well. The first well he calls strife. Second well he calls adversary or enemy. And what's striking here, and really the, the crucial point in the whole chapter, what does it mean to be a hero? How is Isaac a hero here? How does he show the abundant life? He's been blessed. And what is his response when the enemies come for him? He sees the conflict. He calls it conflict, but he moves on. He moves on. He continues to move on. And what's striking here is that the wells continue to come. The water keeps flowing for Isaac. Do you see how God appears in this text with Isaac? No angels, no mighty army, no trumpet, no glory from heaven. Water. Basic, ordinary stuff of life. Isaac, for the sake of peace, continues to trust that God will provide. Isaac, for the sake of peace, continues to trust God. He moves on. He says, I trust in my God. I am willing to give up the wells that are mine. The people say, these are our wells. Isaac knows my dad dug them. He is willing to give up his right because he knows that ultimately his God will be victorious. How can you do that? Don't you see that this really is your story as well? You're beset by enemies that seek to take what is yours. They want to take the joy you have as a Christian. They want to take the inheritance you have in Christ. They want to take that patience, that joy, that love, the fruit of the Spirit that you have. They see your life. They see how it's different. They want it. They want the benefits of the Christian faith. They want a society where all are seen to have value, where all humans matter. That's good. That's God's world. What are you to do when the enemies come for you? What are you to do when Satan comes at you and says, do you know the failure you are? What are you to do in this time? You give up your rights because you look to the Lord. It's never easy to give up toys. If you have 100 Legos, boys and girls, it's a little easier. But if you have two Legos, and somebody wants to take it, that's hard. It's easy to give a room in your house. If you have you know, a huge house, it's hard to give a room in your house if you only have one room. 
It's hard to give space. Isaac has one well. And these guys keep taking it. He has one well, and they keep coming after him and keep taking it. Water and life and prosperity keep coming to him and falling through his fingers. He gets the fortune, he loses the fortune. He gets the, the water, he loses the water. He gets a taste of the good life, he loses it again over and over and over. Is he just an idiot? Is he bad at keeping money? Is he naive or a fool? No. The only way Isaac can be confident is that he believes in God. He believes that God will be with him and bless him. He trusts that God who has spoken to him has bound himself to Isaac. And then lastly, lastly, we see the way God provides in peace. The way God provides in peace. Verse 23 to the end. God shows up again. Verse 24. He gives basically the same promise. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. I'll multiply your offspring. By the way, I hope you notice the Bible often repeats itself. The Bible often repeats itself. Why does it repeat itself? Because we're stupid. We don't get the point. The Bible repeats itself because it wants you to pay attention. Hey, this is a big deal. And so God's saying, hey, it's a big deal that I'm with you, that I will bless you. And the very text that started with God meeting Isaac, now ends with God meeting Isaac. And this time, God says one thing different. Verse 24, do not be afraid. He says to Isaac, do not be afraid. He didn't say that the first time. Why? Well, because now Isaac's been attacked. He is scared. Enemies are attacking him. Soldiers are hitting him. The enemies are coming to attack him. And then look, they come. Verse 26, the enemies come. The enemies are going to be here. They bring their general. They bring their army. Are they coming to fight? No, they're coming to surrender. It's weird. The enemies who have been fighting and taking over the wells, there's no battle. They've not lost on some war, but they come for peace. They come to beg. Verse 28, they say, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Please let us surrender. Please make peace with us. And then the very end of the, of the text, verse 32 Isaac's servants say, hey, we got another water. We got more water. We got another well. It's a beautiful ending. It's a storybook ending. It's a perfect ending. Isaac, blessed with prosperity, leaves it all behind. Isaac, provoked, persecuted, losing water in poverty, in despair. He does not react to the evil attacks against him. He is inactive. Isaac just keeps moving on. And what happens at the very end? His enemies come crawling to his feet, begging for mercy. By giving up his rights and humility, not by striving or attacking or planning or scheming or seeking his own name or seeking his own glory, Isaac wins. The kings of the earth come seeking peace. The story begins, God says, I bless you. The story ends, pagan kings say, I bless you. God's with you. You are the blessed one. And the middle, in this middle, in the middle section, what is there? There's a journey, there's a travel. There's conflict, there's strife, there's battling, there's wars, there's opposition. And Isaac humbly and meekly and willingly and weakly submits to the will of his father in heaven. Does that sound like a story you know? Does that sound like a story you know? It really ought to sound like a story you know. Because it's our Savior story. It's the story of Jesus Christ. 
Listen to the Apostle Paul. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grabbed, to be taken. But he took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and humbled himself, obedient even to the death and the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Humbling yourself is not a way to win wars. Except for Christians. Except for Christians. Isaac wins by losing. Isaac runs away. Isaac's a scaredy cat. Isaac flees. Isaac throws up the white flag. He, he goes to the next place. All he has is God. All he has is God's promise. All he has is God's provision. And what does Christ do when he comes? What does the Savior do when he comes? He comes into an evil world. He wants to make all the earth submit to him. He wants to defeat the dragon, the devil, Satan, death, all evils. How does he do it? Over and over again, he says, Father, I will submit. Father, I will submit. Over and over again, he tells his disciples. He tells Peter. He tells James. He tells John. The Son of Man came to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served. But he came to serve. He came to give his life. He came to suffer. He came to lose. He came to be attacked and yet ultimately win. And that's why the story, your story, all of human history's story, will end with the kings of the earth walking on the stage and saying, Jesus, can we just have peace? Jesus, we're going to say, uncle. Jesus, can we be your friends? Not because Christ flexes his muscles. Not because he insisted that everybody know he was God. But by losing, he wins the whole world. By losing, he wins saints in every nation. Because that one, that Jesus, let himself be persecuted. He let himself be subjected to all manner of evil all the days of his life on earth. Don't you long for the day? Don't you long for the day when it's all over? When there's no more sadness, there's no more pain, there's no more loss. Do you not long for the day when death is gone? Do you not long for the story that ends like this story with Isaac, where your enemies come and say, no, you are right, we just want peace. And you find prosperity and wells, you find water and goodness all over, following you all the days of your life. The problem is we're not there. We're in the middle of the story. We go to wells and we name them strife all the time because we have strife. We go in our lives and we have battle. We go in our lives and we have quarrels. And the question is, how are you going to be a hero in the middle? How are you, the question is not, can you be a hero when everything's great? The question is not, can you have the abundant life when the water's flowing? The question is, can you be a hero in the middle? Because that's where you are. And the answer is that God calls you to take up your cross and follow the path of your Savior. And weirdly, oddly, that is the path of heroism. That is the path of the abundant Christian life. That is the way the kingdom advances. That's the way you get the good life. Not by selling your soul to rake in loot from people who are naive. Not by manipulating folks to give you their loot. Not by hanging out with the classy and the chatty and the celebrities of our day. Not by exalting yourself but by the giving of yourself, by the losing of yourself, by the losing even unto not just the loss of money or wells, but the loss of your life. 
You know, you may have money in this life like Isaac does. You may lose your money in this life like, like Isaac does. But every moment of the way, you will have Jesus Christ. Isn't that what he says in the, in the Great Commission? I will be with you for a few years. No, always. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why the author of Hebrews says that you can be content with what you have because you have God. That he has given himself to you when all looks terrible. That he gives you the abundant life when the doctor calls and says it's malignant. He gives you the full life in the middle of the inflation or recession. He gives you full life right now in the middle of strife and despair. Because if you have God, you have all things. If you have Christ, you have all things. So do you have him? Do you have Christ? Do you have God? Are you a hero? Are you a hero? I suppose the answer is to that question, to know if you're a hero, how do you respond when you're a zero? How do you respond when you're a nobody? How do you respond when things go poorly? If you have God, if you know you have more than Isaac because you have the older brother in heaven, you can give up your rights. You can give up your rights as a Christian. You can give up, you can, you can be trampled on. You consider others more important than yourself because all is yours in Jesus Christ. Is that the kind of hero you want? Is that the heroism you want to display? May we do so today. May we do so this week. Because God says, I am with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do come before you. We thank you that you provide for us. You provide for us in the middle of a famine. You provide for us in the middle of the challenging moments of our lives. You provide for us when we have a lot or we have a little. And Lord, you call us to live like Christ. You call us to have the mindset of losing to win. The mindset of loss of all things is nothing compared to the great gain of Jesus Christ and of knowing him, being found in him. We pray, Lord, that you would mark us as heroes on this journey until we do gain that peace, that new Jerusalem glory. Strengthen us to run our race. We pray this in the great name of our older brother, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.